My name is Ross McKeechee. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. Today I'm in conversation, or we are in conversation, with Dr. Shafali. And before I get into her formal introduction and talking about her new book, A Radical Awakening, I'll just make our usual Banyan announcements. First of all, acknowledging that though we have people joining us from around the world today, the physical location of Banyan Books in Kitsilano in Vancouver is on the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books and Sound is in its 50th year of business as an independent bookstore, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. So we're celebrating independent local bookstores. Please support your local independent bookstores. All of your purchases with Banyan can be made at our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, or you can pop into the store at 4th and Dunbar every day of the week between 11 and 7. Okay, our special guest today, Dr. Shafali, is a world-renowned wisdom teacher, author, and speaker who presents and teaches both online and in person. And she also has a private practice with individual clients. Originally from Mumbai, India, she moved to San Francisco as a young woman to study at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Later, she received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University in New York. Dr. Shafali has written four books, three of which are New York Times bestsellers including her two landmark books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. She is speaking with us today about her newest book, which was released in May of this year, 2021. It's called A Radical Awakening. A Radical Awakening aims to awaken women from old patriarchal limitations and into their authentic, empowered and whole self. It's a fantastic book. Oprah has endorsed Dr. Shafali's work as revolutionary and life-changing. She described The Conscious Parent as one of the most profound books on parenting she's ever read. And Dr. Gabor Mate said of her newest book, A Radical Awakening, Dr. Shafali's latest book is a powerful call for women to divest themselves of their patriarchy-imposed roles of automatic and compulsive caregivers at the cost of their physical health, emotional freedom, and spiritual awareness. So Banyan Books community, please join me in welcoming Dr. Shafali. Dr. Shafali, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I just so admire your mission, your vision. I'm so proud that you are doing this and humbled that I get to be a part of this. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for saying that. So I want to just ask first, your new book, A Radical Awakening, maybe we can define for our audience what you mean by awakening and particularly what is an awakened woman? So there's several layers to that question. So first, what does it mean to awaken? So just like I did in my parenting books and what I'm doing in this book, 
is to make us understand that the paradigms we are living under may be not so uh, truth-seeking, truth-engendering, or truth-upholding. In fact, they could be the causes of our suffering. We are living within matrices that cause suffering. So in my parenting books, I showed how the traditional parenting paradigm was suffocating. And now I want to show us women how our current ideological paradigm under the toxic patriarchy is stifling. So the first awakening is to understand that we're living under this auspice that is toxic. So to recognize, the awakening comes when you recognize, oh my goodness, all the things I thought I should be doing to arrive at happiness may be misbeliefs, may be lies. That's the first epiphany. And then the radical awakening is to understand that, well, all of this has been done to me, but now how am I doing it to myself? So that's the radical part where you begin to see your co-creation in every emotional experience. Thank you. And you really get into that in the book and, and you don't pull any punches in pointing to not only how, how the patriarchal system imposes that, but also how women can take responsibility for continuing those structures within themselves. I think our audience would be very curious. You, you share a lot about your personal journey in the book. Can you give us a little outline of your own journey and how you came to writing this book, your own experiences that led to this? So I've been having many radical awakenings, but none so drastic as the one I recently had because I finally kind of allowed myself to not entertain fear like I used to, I finally broke out. And I think something strange happens to women in their midlife. You wanna stay away from a woman in her midlife because she finally realizes, you know what? I checked it all off. I did everything I was supposed to and F this shit. You know, you just, you reach a point where you're done. And, um, and I think it's a portal of opportunity that I at least arrived at. And I see many women arrive at, you know, when the children are grown, children are a woman's, ultimate destination in some ways. You know, she feels um, because of the, the patriarchy that she's incomplete until she does her job as a good mother. And when the kids reach teenagehood, as my daughter did, you know, then you realize, okay, so now who am I? And you, your whole identity, you know, the last one was the good mother. And when you're not needed anymore, as uh, your, your teenagers will quickly make you realize that you are just a wallet or a car drive, uh, you begin to have an identity crisis. But the identity crisis is a portal for freedom that you finally get to get rid of your roles. So that's what happened to me. It was not uh, an identity crisis as in a traumatic tragedy, but of freedom that, okay, I'm done now. And now I can discover who it is I am beneath all these roles that I've been playing. And I had been meditating for 25 years. So I, I had a foundation that I could dip into of this uh, awareness that I am not my roles. But I was just waiting to check out that last one. And then I could dip into this ocean of my essence that was, was powerful, sovereign, empowered, without the role. I finally could say, okay, no more roles. I am now entering my own essence. So that was my journey. 
And in this book, I lay out this process so other women and men can arrive at this place of essential freedom that comes from tapping into our essence beyond the role. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and I know that you, you touch on it in the book, um, how there might've been some worry on your part in terms of making some of these changes that you had to make in your life based on your, you have a very public image. Can you talk a little bit about that for us too? Sure. So people who may have followed my work know that I'm anti-image, right? I'm anti-being the perfect parent or anti-raising the perfect child. So all my work is renegade anti-establishment in that way. However, when I was breaking my own image of myself, uh, I did have some, you know, angst. After all, I had written the books on the conscious parent and the awakened family, and now I was going through a divorce. I was like, holy, you know, crap. Now, you know, people are going to judge me. So I went through my own egos. It's the voice of the ego, as I explain in all my work. There's this voice that we have from childhood that keeps admonishing us and keeps us in line according to what we think culture wants. So my ego roared, oh, what will people say about you? Oh, you wrote the book, The Awakened. The author of The Awakened Family just went through a divorce. Like how perfect, right? But I also write about the fundamental, unequivocal importance of authenticity. All my work is about that. So I could also lean into that, that I've never strayed away from the authentic journey. And if I did it with integrity and did it with as much of an awakened consciousness as I can muster, you know, no one is fantastically, perfectly conscious. And if I could talk about my ego, my vulnerabilities, my regressions, then I would actually help people, you know, better that I'm a fallible person, really. So I used that journey of, of tremendous breaking free and whatever, you know, every time you break a chain, there's freedom on the other side, but breaking it causes some wounds, you know, and the journey is never free of the wounds. So this book talks about that freedom, but also the wounds I had to bear to arrive there. And um, so, yeah, my ego roared, but I, I knew how to talk to my ego. I know that that is a voice of indoctrinated shame that keeps us suppressed, keeps us from breaking the box, keeps us from rattling the house. And I'm a rattler of the house, you know, for the prize of authenticity, I will rattle the house. So as long as the prize is authenticity, you have to learn to pay whatever price. And therefore this book and my other books are only for those who seek at a very deep level, who are able to walk away from their cultural indoctrination. It's not easy, but that's the promise of my work. And you, you touched on shame and blame there, and you talk a lot about fear and how that keeps women stuck in the roles that they're playing. How, how big is that in terms of that unconscious fear and the fear of shame and also the, the blaming ourselves, but also blaming others? How do, how do those things keep women stuck in their roles? It's huge, monumental. I don't care if women say they have no fear, they're just not in touch with it. Uh, we have been raised on a diet of, guilt and shame, women more than men, because our basic biology is to be nurturers, 
is to be givers. It's, you know, we have the bosom, we have a vagina that gives birth. Our biology is set up with its oxytocin and bonding. We bond, we're the tribe builders, we are the connectors. This is in our emotional DNA. So it's almost as if culture could smell that, not weak point, but our, our inherent uh, softness and marauded it for its advantage. So we have now been indoctrinated to give to the point of self-obliteration. And the way culture has so insidiously through generations brainwashed us is by telling us that we will get love and worth by being good girls, good girls. So we are, we are taught to suppress our voice stand at the back of the line, wait for others to be served at the table, metaphorically speaking, and, and hold our turn and our tongue because that is the route to love and worth. Good girls are loving and lovable and worthy. So that's how we have been insidiously trained. And you know, when I was raised in India, I thought the Western woman surely is not plagued by these messages. But when I came here, it's not as, bold and blatant, but it, it's still the undercurrent even here. You know, people pleasers are one every second women, woman is a people pleaser, is ridden with guilt and shame because this is the training we get. So this book teaches us to first recognize the guilt and shame. Ah, that's my pattern. Oh, this is me suppressing my inner knowing. Oh, here I'm disconnecting because I want love and worth. And only when we can become aware, first is awareness. And that is the shocking epiphany that, oh my goodness, I've been living this pattern. And then the second step is what can I do about it? So um, it's huge, guilt and shame is huge. And the only women who say they don't have it are the ones who are disconnected from it in their lives. That's how big it is. You, you talk about awareness being number one. And you mentioned before your, your ego roaring. One of the amazing things you bring up is these uh, three overarching kind of faces of the ego. You give them names, givers, controllers, and takers. Can you give our, and then within those, there's, there's the subcategories of the archetypes. Can you give our audience a bit of an understanding of these faces of the ego? So let's talk about why and how the ego forms as I talk about it. So in childhood, we come into the world really ready to be ourselves. And before you know it, in the womb, we're told who our family is, what the traditions are, what the religion is, how to go to school, how to look, what is pretty, what is worthy, what is successful, what is achieving, and so on and on and on. I mean, it's literally 1,000 things on the list. So we quickly realize that who it is we are is not going to be unequivocally accepted. This is happening very subtly by the age of two or three. And we begin to mutate and morph and shed our authentic self in order to serve ourselves to get whatever love and worth we think we need to get. We, it's survival. So we wear faces that I call the faces of the ego. And these faces are just to avoid conflict, get love, get approval, or what I call the triple threat to get validation, approval, and praise. And to just to be like, fly under the radar. Like, let's just get through this childhood till I can learn how to either function or I fall apart. So our entire childhood, because of unconscious legacies that our parents gave us, 
But because of their wounds, it's not their fault. They are wounded as well. We live in this matrix of um, inauthenticity. So the three main faces, and these are just generalizations, that I see women take on are the faces of the givers. Some women just go toward that based on their temperament. Some go towards the controllers and some go toward the takers. You know, all three are cunning ways of getting love and worth. They're not intentionally exploitative, but they are unintentionally manipulative. They are our fear that if we're not that, we won't get love and worth. So the givers are typically those who are the, the people pleasers, the martyrs, the victims, the saviors, the bleeding empaths who will give so much of themselves to set up a dynamic where they then feel resentful, unworthy, unloved, only because that's where they were starting from in the first place. So givers typically burn out really fast. That's what happened to me. Um, so for example, the martyr is always, oh, it's always me. The victim is always the poor me. The savior is, I'm here, I'm here to rescue. Never mind, no one is asking, right? And then the bleeding empath is I feel you more than you feel you. Each one of the givers has an intolerable anxiety inside that they assuage and deny by shifting gear into the giver role. Really easy. Once you see it, you will be shocked, sometimes nauseated at how, how it is. You know, when I began to recognize my savior role, I literally realized I was having auditory hallucinations because I was thinking people are asking me to rescue them. Dr. Shivani, can you rescue me? I mean, I, I was acting like they asked me to rescue them. And then only after years, I realized, oh, no one was asking. Like these were hallucinations from my training because I, I went into savior mode really young because that's how I got an identity. That's how I got love and worth. Wow, she, that's why I became a therapist. You know, it's like, it just continued on and on. Thank goodness I write some, some books and got made a living out of it, but otherwise it would just be a whole mess. So those are the givers. Then the controllers, the controllers have high anxiety too, but they mask the anxiety through excessive doing. They don't give, they do. But they're doing, you know, every one of us has met a controller and they drive us crazy and maybe we're the controller too, you know? So the controllers are the perfectionistics, the, the ones who are the perfectionists, the uh, passive aggressive tyrants, I'm gonna talk about that. The, um, who are the other the controllers? The, the shields and the helicopter. So the perfectionist is the one we all know who everything has to be perfect before they move on. And many of them don't even move on, right? Because they're waiting for life to be perfect. The helicopter cannot sit still. She's that mother who while you're eating, she's cleaning things up. Like she makes you dizzy, right? Because she's like overproducing everybody. The passive aggressive tyrant is many of us mothers too. You know, it's the mother who says yes all day. I, I used to do this. I used to say yes all day. I was just so passive in my like loveliness, lovely, lovely, lovely. Okay, I'll read 17 uh, stories. Okay, I'll sing 22 uh, songs. And then the clock used to hit 9.02. And then I used to just lose my shit. Like I became like the worst person. I, I wish I just said no at nine in the morning because I 
just flipped. So that's who I call the passive aggressive tyrant because we're so passive aggressive in our loveliness. We're like lovely, 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 but we're not in touch with the fact that we're raging inside. And then when we, when the rage comes out, everyone is beheaded, right? It's like a, a storm. And then the shield. The shield is someone who has learned early on not to show any emotions. She's your typical, you know, prototypical Madeleine Albright or Hillary Clinton, who's like really learns, has learned to survive in a masculine world. And um, so these are the controllers. And then, so I talk about each of these archetypes and you can find resonance in them. And then I have the, um, the takers. Now the takers, every, all women will be like, I'm not a taker, but most of us are takers. Takers, I, I, it's, it's a word that we don't like to associate with ourselves, but takers are essentially cut off from their inner governance. Most of us have been raised to be the passive waiting for the prince, waiting for the rescuer to come in our lives, little girls. We don't realize we have been, but we've been in waiting mode. We're just waiting, you know, and many of my clients will come to me in a, in a conflict for seven, eight years. And I'll be like, what are we waiting for? And they're like, I don't know, my kids to grow up, the partner to change, for me to lose 10 pounds, for me to have another $10,000 in the bank account. But we don't realize that that is a conditioning which comes out of deep lack of governance. And we were raised to follow the father, then follow the father in the religious institution, follow the teachers, follow the boss. And this following, and because we didn't occupy the male gender, we, we fell back. But we've fallen so bad, we're just waiting. And to wake up takes a lot. So the takers are the divas, you know, who are a little bit entitled. Uh, no one wants to accept this, but we all have a bit of a diva in us. The princess is just the one who is the waiting for the prince to come and rescue her. And the child is the one who just doesn't want to see reality for what it is. So this is typically the woman who will come to me who tells me she got jilted or was betrayed and she didn't see any signs and refuses to take responsibility that she was living in a bubble of optimism to protect her, but she didn't want to wake up. So why are these prototypes important to recognize? And I haven't even covered all that are possible, right? There's the complainers, the whiners, the gossip mongers. There's so many, but I didn't have to do all because once you open it up and be begin to become aware, you can begin to realize, ah, these are the masks I'm wearing because I'm afraid to be me. Yes. I recommend everybody get the book and, and read, and I mean, read the whole thing, obviously, but that section, even for me as a man, I mean, these ego structures are there for me too. And I found it incredibly helpful. The other thing you point to for, for women to become aware of is understanding the difference in biopsychology for men and women. Now, can you first help us understand what you mean by biopsychology and then let us know why it's important? Well, our biology has such a profound influence on our psychology. And I think we've forgotten that. And especially in our relationships in heterosexual unions with the males in our lives, we females are like banging our heads. And we don't realize that a lot of the reason we're banging our heads is because of the way males are wired. Now, women don't like many females. I'm just going to say females because, you know, 
females don't like when I say that because they think I'm giving males a pass. And, you know, oh, so it's okay if he looks at every girl in the store, you know. And what I'm trying to say is it's not okay or not okay. It's what is natural to the male. And I think many of us females don't realize male biology. You can tell me as a male, like, I, I don't think males understand male biology. I think culture has shamed males. Absolutely. Yeah, there's shame on both sides, I think. There's yes. that split where your, your, your natural tendency goes one way, but then that part of your mind kicks in that says you shouldn't be doing that. Right. So uh, in, in the female's life, we've been so vilified, excoriated for our recognition of our powerful sexuality. We've been cut off from it. We cut our males off from it. So we're living in a very absurd sexual environment. And that causes a lot of misunderstanding in heterosexual unions and a lot of pain. And we women are not fully potentialized in terms of our own sexual companionship. So this book, you know, part three talks about owning your vagina and owning your sexuality and not being shy to, to know yourself and to self-pleasure so that your partner can give you pleasure and freeing yourself from judgments towards males. Most of what women, females judge males for, most of it is wired. Now, does that mean the male can be violent, a rapist, abusive? No, but you know, how many of my friends get upset with their, with their partners if they're ogling at some woman? And what we don't understand is a lot of it is wired. So they can be respectful, they can be discreet, sure. But we need to open up these discussions and talk about it. And part three is so threatening to people because it talks about sexuality that literally people have left reviews that the first two parts are so lovely. And then I don't know what happened to Dr. Shafali. She is promoting a leftist agenda <laughs> and she's destroying society only because I talked about sex. You know, we are so sexually abhorrent that it's really a neurosis, you know? And it, it, way back in India, we had the Kama Sutra. And if you look at the relics on temple walls, you know, there was free sexuality. But in the Western puritanical mind of religious morality, free sexuality is like, oh, everyone is, you know, going to get a sexually transmitted disease and die or something really like anarchy is going to take over. We're so afraid to even talk about it. And that's what this book is like really pushing. Why? Because as long as we women are disconnected from our sexuality, we will actually lose the whole in the, in the matrix. We will lose. Part of our awakening and power will come from our being connected to our own sexuality and realizing we don't need a man as much as we think we do to pleasure us and that we can pleasure ourselves and that we can be powerful and own our sexuality and end all the judgments so that our males, for example, don't have to lie to us and don't have to quote unquote cheat on us. If we opened it up, we would have a different sexual environment. And so many couples break up because of this mismatch. And this book educates women, females to understand female sexuality and male sexuality. One of the things I really loved, and I'm wondering if you can go into it a little more is in, in sexual relationship between men and women. And in order for that 
sexual relationship to reach its highest potential on a spiritual level. The importance of it being a, throughout the whole day, the practice of creating that environment or container of emotional intimacy and connection. Can you speak more to that? So I talk about transcendent intimacy, which really is a relationship created by two whole individuals who are not seeking the other to complete them and who are so deeply emotionally, mentally, psychologically connected that intimacy is out of the bedroom. And their sexuality is only one expression of that intimacy. And so intimacy really becomes about these two individuals exploring their beingness together all through the day, right? So you don't only have sex in the bed, you are trans transmuting the idea of intimacy to how you make eggs, to how you take a walk and you're deeply connected, but that can only happen between two whole individuals who have done a lot of inner work on themselves. So it starts with the individual work and then it bleeds into the relationship. Okay, yes. thank you. Now, boundaries. In the last part of the book, you talk about these key pieces for women to embrace. And boundaries is such a, seems like such a big one for so many women. Can you tell us why that's so important and not just for the women themselves, but for their, their partners and their families? Well, again, we women have been raised on the, the biological imperative to give, right? I mean, look at the infant suckling on the breast. There's no boundary, right? Look at her period, her menstruation coming out of her body, no control, no boundary. You know, we by our body, our very physiological setup have been trained to be boundaryless. This is our beauty. There is no boundary. Children know they can just come in like, just be on the belly. We women are that, that beautiful nurturing space. That's our power. But in this toxic culture, we get annihilated for having no boundaries. And we need to give, but we need to have sacred boundaries. Otherwise our giving again will be to the point that we have no internal self growth, self-bounty left. So boundaries are extremely important for especially empathic women who just by nature want to give, but you can't keep giving in this toxic culture. You have to give very choicefully, very intentionally, very consciously. And so I talk about the power of boundaries. And because we are nurturers, we end up nurturing toxic individuals as if we are their mothers or saviors or, you know, and, and in these enmeshed relationships, we don't realize that we're actually harming our children and them. So we women need to have a beautiful balance along the continuum of masculine energy and feminine energy. Otherwise we can veer into toxic femininity and males talk, veer into toxic masculinity. But we females need to also see if we are in toxic feminine mode, where our adaptability becomes civility, where our accommodation becomes passivity, right? Where, where our flexibility becomes paralysis. We are toxically feminine sometimes. And so we need to wake up into our integration of masculine and feminine and males need to leave the toxically masculine side to enter their integration of masculine feminine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, one thing that came to mind for me is wondering what's the, what's the qualitative difference between a woman who is 
has gone through or is continuing to go through this awakening process and makes a conscious choice to set aside her boundaries in a particular instance or to be the giver or the nurturer versus a woman who's doing it from a mechanical conditioned kind of unconscious place? Well, the one who does it from a mechanical unconscious place will eventually burn out. So she may give, but eventually she'll fall sick. She'll have chronic fatigue, stressors, MS, all these diseases related to excessive giving because she would have denied herself so much that eventually it'll pay a toll on her own body. The other one who gives out of careful choice and conscious awareness is ever replenishing herself because she's taking care of how much. She's checking when the other is dependent on her. She doesn't need people to enmesh with her anymore. She doesn't need to give because she needs to get love and worth. She's giving because it works for her. She understands that her giving is receiving. I always say that one way to check is to check that your giving is receiving at the same time. So at least that's a rule I, I say for myself that when I'm saying yes, am I saying yes to myself as well? Because I'm tired of being a martyr. I did so many years of saying yes to the outside world, even though it was a no from inside. And that schism can cause illness. It can cause literal languishing, apathy, you know, dullness, learned helplessness, because you've lived with such a schism saying yes, saying yes, when you mean to say no, that you betray yourself. And we do it because we want to keep the peace. But as I say in the book, that keeping peace inauthentic, inauthentically is actually an act of war. Because eventually you're going to fall down and break down and die or have an illness. How is that going to help anyone? Yeah. You talk about how it's, it's all a process of reparenting oneself. What is that? How do we how do we put that into practice? Like right now, if I'm if I'm saying, okay, I want to I want to begin this awakening process as a woman, I want to be empowered. How do I begin to reparent myself? Hey, you're asking a tough question, Ross. It takes forever. But first step is the awareness that I have all these wounds and these traumas from childhood I didn't realize I did. And I'm carrying all this excess baggage. Now I want to release them, right? You're saying, okay, now we're ready to release them. So we have to learn how to become the parent that we never had. We're going to have to learn how to give ourselves the love and worth that we never got. We're going to have to learn this deep communion with ourselves so that this inner connection is self-fulfilling. It's a self-sustaining orbit of endless replenishment. This has to be so clear. This alignment has to be so powerful that you're not going to be swayed anymore out of false desire for worth. So this, what we're talking about, sounds really like, okay, create this. To create this, this being connected, all connected, and you're aware and you're self-loving. I mean, it's, it's been 25 years for me and it'll keep being a journey. So I don't want to let people think it's like one, two, three. However, if they begin now, they read books like mine, they take courses. I do courses, so many people do courses. They enlist a teacher, somebody like me or you who have done deep inner work and they get a guide 
on this process. And if they do it seriously within six to um, 12 months, they will see a huge shift. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the journey. They have to keep reparenting themselves. So reparenting is evoking and reigniting the mother and father we never had, but giving it to ourselves. So learning how to talk to ourselves in a way that we never received. It's a whole training and you can do it, but it takes a long time. I've been meditating since I was 21. So uh, building awareness is a lifelong dedication, but you can begin right now and your life will be palpably different right away in, in small ways and then bigger ways. Thank you. I've got one more question before we get to the audience uh, portion. This one seems really big. The difference between love and enmeshment, you get into that in the book. Can you give our audience a little bit of an understanding? <laughs> so I talk about, and this is a common Buddhist uh, philosoph philosophical idea, that we don't love, or we attach. We don't love, we enmesh. We don't love, we possess. We don't love, we control. We don't love, we own. Right. So most love without consciousness is ownership, possession and control. This is a huge ouch for people. And they sometimes shut my book. They don't want to listen to me again. They're like, no, I love, I love, I love my children. I'm like, okay, I'm not saying you don't love. I'm saying you love out of possession, ownership and control. Of course you love, but you're loving from a space that has these elements. And we want to arrive at a place that is not enmeshed with your children where your identity is not enmeshed with their, with their being. You know, the adage, you're only as happy as your least happy child is a romantic one, but it's really not very helpful, not good. No, your happiness should not depend on your child's happiness. You know, your child doesn't need to feel, oh, I'm going through something, now my mom is not happy. No, that's a codependent enmeshed dysfunctional attitude. And we have these ideas about love. You know, love is your other half fulfilling you and you have to fall in love. You know, the other day I met a friend and she said, you know, she was dating and she said, you know, I didn't, this time I haven't fallen in love. I said, oh, fabulous. You know, why must you fall? Why can't you just be steady? She's like, but this doesn't feel like I'm falling. And like the idea, I go, exactly, because the idea is toxic. This, this toppling over is losing your mind, losing your balance. You never want to lose your balance. The idea of a soulmate, to me, it doesn't exist. Okay, now if I'm popping bubbles, I don't know. But there is no soulmate out there. But we're sold this stuff. So then we have a wrong idea of love. Most of our love is conditional for the other person. Like we want, if the other person doesn't give us love in our way, we get angry with them because they should give us love in our way. And that is not love. That is conditional love for the other person. Now we can have our own conditions, our own criteria, but it's not about the other person. So our ideas of love are corrupted and this book demystifies that so that we can arrive at a true awareness of what we can even expect of another. What can we expect of another human being? Should we be expecting the way we are expecting? But that's why we have a contract. You see the marital contract is like, okay, these are your job descriptions and you better fulfill it. And then you sign it. And if you don't, now you've broken the contract. So we've taken the free emotion of love and we've put it in a contract. Like people need to see the, the 
clash of that. And of course, people will say, because that way, then people will stay together. But how sad that people have to stay together because of a contract. So anyway, I'm not against the contract. I'm just showing what the contract is. It's in direct contrariness to this idea of love. And, um, you know, what is love? And to really examine, go deep to examine, do I really love this person or do I need this person? Do I really love this person or do I want to own this person? And these are tough questions to ask. Very tough questions. Thank you. Maybe maybe some of the toughest to really own up to within ourselves. Okay, audience questions. We've got a few coming in here. The first one is from Sheena. And she says, can Dr. Shefali speak to forgiveness? How does one forgive ourselves for the part we played in a toxic dynamic that caused us pain? And how do we forgive the other as we transition out of a relationship? So I say this quite a lot that I the idea this whole concept of forgiveness is also a huge ba intellectual barrier and emotional barrier. There is nothing to forgive. You know, there's nothing to forgive. People are unconscious. We are unconscious. Everyone operates from their continuum of consciousness, wherever they are. Are not accepting that we were or they are on a certain point of the continuum is why we think we need to forgive them. Mm. There's no need to forgive anyone. It's just accept. Acceptance is way more powerful than forgiveness. Forgiveness makes us feel like we're in some, you know, hierarchical place of superiority. We don't, we don't get to forgive anybody. We get to walk away from people. We get to release people. We get to say, thank you so much. And I don't want you in my life. We get to say that. But what is this idea of forgiveness? You know, either we accept the person that they operated out of a particular consciousness and we get it, we understand. Similarly for ourselves, okay, we were unconscious. So forgiveness has some superiority to it that I stay away from. I I'll never ask for forgiveness and I'll never presume I need to forgive someone. I need to understand or I don't understand. It's as simple. And if I understand, I accept. We are all unconscious. The idea that we all should be perfect is delusional, comes again from a narcissistic superior idea of ourselves. So when we look back on the destruction we've caused in our lives, oh my God, we're like, holy crap, that was a train wreck the last 45 years, okay? But that is the nature of awakening. Yes, lots of unconscious moments. And, and not accepting that implies a resistance to the nature of the human. We are grossly unconscious. So when you meet, a, when you get to see the revelation that somebody has been unconscious with you, you go, hello, welcome unconscious, where have you been? Rather than, how could you do this to me? Now you've betrayed me, now I'm going to have to forgive you. All that is intellectual jargon. Truth that comes from deep wisdom understands we're all effed up in our own beautiful ways. It's going to show up in this way or that way, an affair or burnt toast or a forgotten pickup at the train station or somebody stole $10,000. It will have a different face. It all emerges from the same place that I or you were disconnected to our own heart. How sad that that person 
had to steal from you, cheat to you, lie to you. How disconnected they must be. So what have you got to forgive? Only compassion. Forgiveness is a Western superior hierarchical notion. I don't have to forgive anyone and people have done some, some wicked things. But I own my co-creation. I own my part. I own their unconsciousness and go, holy, wow, they were really unconscious. I didn't even realize. Okay, that is the price for dealing with humans. This is not a happy, happy place. This is an unconscious place. Every other person is unconscious, if not every person. So this is a, a, accepting it with, without resistance. With discernment, yes, you try to scream, but you don't fight it. You will be hurt. You will be lied to. You will be cheated. Nobody has lived a life by 50 that it has to do. Accept it. And let's move on. You know, let's accept. We were unconscious. They were unconscious. Now we're going to grow. Let's move on. The next question from our audience is from Ruth. She says, I have worked with women coming out of a abusive relationships for 42 years as a lawyer. The common denominator I see is crucially low self-esteem. Does your book look at that? I see it even in amazingly high status lawyers and women judges, this denigration of self. Thank you, this is very interesting. So in my book on page 42, I talk about the pill that kills and it is exactly what you're talking about. And the pill that kills that I call, that I give it a name is unworthiness. And I write, if we were to dissect a woman's brain and examine the messages ingrained therein, we would be shocked at not only how similar our beliefs are, but also how many nuances we have embraced concerning how to be a woman. It's hard for us to accept that we've been utterly brainwashed. It's as if our minds have been possessed. The main ingredient of the pill we all swallow as women is that of unworthiness. This pill slowly but surely eviscerates our sense of self. We women have swallowed bucketfuls of these pills. The deadly part is that our unworthiness is heavily disguised, so we mistake it for virtuosity. This is how clever culture is. You know, when we're self-sacrificing, when we're pleasing, when we're sweet, when we're servile, when we don't speak up at the boardroom meeting, culture has told us that that's how to be good. But underneath is our unworthiness because we want to be good, you see. As long as we want to be seen as the good one, we will keep doing this cycle. Our worth has to stop coming from the outside world. As long as our worth comes from, do you see me? Do you like me? Do you think I'm a good person? Do you think I'm a kind person? We're going to suffocate our true voice. So my radical awakening was when I truly could burn the desire to be seen as the good one. I was like, I don't care. Call me a bitch. You can call me another four letter word. You can call me another. It stopped mattering to me. That's when I knew I was free. When I cut off all my needs, to be seen in a particular way. And here's the thing, how we women co-create our own tragedy. We are married to an idea of ourselves. Because of our marriage to that idea, we're so lovely, we're so sweet, we're such givers, we're so 
bountiful. We're always going to say yes. Because we are in this relationship with this image, we're totally not seeing reality as it is. Somebody is pillaging, somebody is stealing, somebody is lying. We don't care. We're like, this is more important to us, you see? And so in this book, I show women, no, no, until you own that you've been in this relationship in your own merry little movie about Miss Beautiful Good Girl, you won't take ownership for how you allowed Mr. There to lie to you and Miss There to steal from you and that one to be rude to you. No, you have to own that it mattered more to you how you looked. That's why you never spoke up. Don't blame the other that they shut you up. Examine yourself to see how much more important it was for you to be the good one. Then you will own your co-creation. Yes. Now, everybody, just so you know, if you haven't read Dr. Shafali's books, the way she's speaking, this inspiring passion, this is how her writing comes through. It's fantastic. And her books are captivating. So I really recommend you read her book. Okay, this, this next question, and thanks to everyone in the audience, the community, for sending in their questions. This one's from Ayushri. She says, for a single Indian girl like you, is marriage important for becoming self-aware? Has a breakthrough happened for you after parenting and marriage? My breakthrough happened when I realized that all these checkboxes were complete illusions. So... No, marriage is not important to me. I don't believe in it completely as an institution. I believe you can get married, meaning have a union, but you don't need to legally do anything. I'm against the legalization of it. I'm against the binding contract transactionality of it. I'm against the morality of it. Uh, if you're truly with your partner, you're with your partner while the love lasts and there should be a three-year Maybe, okay, seven-year renegotiation, you know? Like, you have to relook at this. If it's a contract, hello, relook at the contract. Get a reappraisal, right? We do it for our houses. I mean, so I'm all for union. People think, you know, oh, I'm Mr. Dr. Shafari sounds so bitter because I speak with a bitter truth, but I'm not bitter at all. I'm all for transcendent love. I'm all for open, honest, engaged unions. I have deep connections in my life, but I've cut through the need to have these uh, surface appendages, uh, trinkets, because culture needs me to. Beautiful, yeah. The, so the point is not in, in the togetherness and the commitment, it's in the contractual obligatory aspect of marriage. And the control aspect of it, that now that the person signed, like I own where their eyes go, I own where their thoughts go, and definitely own where their other parts go. That is what I'm against, I'm in about freedom. The other, the other piece I'm seeing in Ayushri's question, I think is, she's wondering if that if marriage is important for becoming self-aware, she's wondering, I think, does she need to be in a relationship in order to become self-aware? No, no. You need to be in a relationship with yourself or if you are in a relationship, use it to become self-aware because relationships are fantastic stomping grounds to realize all your old wounds. So use the relationship to become self-aware, but the relationship if you're not self-aware, it's going to take you down. But no, no harm, we've all done that. And then the relationship can become a beautiful portal for growth. But that's all many of the early relationships are. 
they're just a mirror for how we need to grow. We think it's the one and only forever, but they're just here to show us how we have to grow. You know, so if you can look at it like that, then you don't think you're being heartbroken or betrayed. You go, thank you for the lesson. Wow, that was a really painful lesson, but I've learned, I've grown, and now I move on. But these romantic ideas of, you know, together forever mess us from learning the lesson. How do you respond to, um, maybe we could call them traditionalists, and, and that means people tra traditional in the patriarchal sense, that make that argument you mentioned earlier in the discussion about, uh, you know, society, the things that are making society fall apart. And people often point to the institution of marriage as a, as a measuring stick. How do you respond to people that might take the wrong end of the stick in terms of these, these aspects you're describing? Okay, if we can be very honest, since you've asked this question, mm -hmm. uh, what is the success rate of marriage? What is it? It's not very high in North America anyways. Right, so would we get on a plane, right? We wouldn't, which had 40% chance of success. And you know, if it's 60% divorce, there's 20% on the fence, 10% just totally terrified, and 5% happy, right? So it's not working anyway. It doesn't matter. It's an idea we have to control each other. And the, the wrong idea that if we didn't have it, we would all be in a nonstop sexual orgy. This is the insanity because we're so repressed. Well, let me tell you, if we didn't have marriage, what would happen? We would be interconnected in a tribal community, more community oriented. We'd be together. Sisters would depend, women would depend on each other more. We would have more intentional, we wouldn't abandon our children. We women would never allow that to happen. We would band together more. The nuclear system is to me a great tragedy. It's, it's, a, it's a ripe field for psychosis. Think about it, that poor child only has two crazy people to turn to. Okay, crazy here and less crazy here. But imagine if it had 50 people to turn to, it would find its match, right? Right? Every child needs a match. We're not our children's perfect match. And we need community for that. And we've lost community. So marriage and the whittling down of property and ownership of land and children and women and now nuclear families with the big yard and the fence. Oh my goodness, we've completely disconnected from how we should be living. And we women have disconnected from each other. We all should be, I mean, to use Hillary Clinton's book title, it does take a village. It doesn't take one man and one woman. It needs a lot of women and a few connected men and the others can go hunt, you know? Do what you're good at. The ones who are more connected to the feminine, you can come in. But the women need to do this. Now, feminists will go, oh, you're saying that women should just raise the children? No, I'm saying we're really good at it. We are on point. We're amazing. We're amazing at everything, really. And, but we can't let go of the fact that we need help from each other. And we women have become disconnected from each other. You know, who, who does a battered woman call? Another woman. We need to step that game up. And when we are more connected, let me tell you, toxic masculinity will go back, will be pushed back in its place. You know, in India, they have this pink sari gang. Have you heard of it? Yes. Those women who wear pink saris and they go with sticks. They go and they fight all these, these drunken males who are abusive. They tell the males, hey, you can't be toxic here. We need each other and we need to educate the males 
with compassion, with love, with understanding, that they are suffering too. What can men do? Well, men can really do a lot. They can really listen to us. Um, they can really invite us like you are. What a beautiful presence you have. You listen, you invite, you're still, you, you're in your heart. That's what we need. We need, we need your masculinity, but we also need your heart, your femininity. We need you to not just look at us as objects of beauty or just objects to be controlled. We need you to evoke our thinking mind so that we feel confident to use our voice and our heart and our mind. You know, for so long, we've been told to be quiet that we don't use our voice. So at a, at a boardroom meeting, the men should be like all the women, all the females here go first. They are more, we need to hear them. That would be, all meetings should be about the female. And then we change the, we change the climate in these ways, you know? We also teach women that we adore them for not just their looks, so they don't feel so much pressure to look a certain way. We begin to tell women, we like you without makeup. We like you in your slippers. I know it's really hard for men to say that, but no, don't wear the push-up bra and look sexy. We like you without the red lipstick. I know it's hard. We can practice. <laughs> don't wear the sexy, sexy laundry. You're beautiful just the way you are. No, but I'm not talking about just simple, silly things. I'm talking about really, you know, men can help us not feel all this pressure, but really it's up to us. We castigate ourselves more than any man. And that's why this book is a call to both men and to women to step up to the plate. And it is a wonderful book, again, for our community called Radical Awakening by Dr. Shafali. Her website is www.drshafali.com. That's D-R-S-H-E-F-A-L-I.com. And of course, you can purchase it at Banyan's website, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, Banyan.com. Thanks to everybody in our audience, the community, the Banyan community worldwide for joining us and being a part of these events. And of course, you can listen to the recordings of these podcasts. You can go to our YouTube channel or anywhere podcasts are cast, uh, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Music, and, uh, and all the podcasting sites. Just look for Banyan Books in mm -hmm. Conversation. And a big thanks to Jacob, our producer, who does so much work to bring all these amazing events together. Dr. Shafali, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really wonderful to have you as our special guest. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Jacob, Banyan Books, and all of you who showed up on a Sunday. I'm so impressed. Thank you very much. I love what you do. I'm always here to support your fabulous mission. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Conversation, a podcast with Banyan Books and Sound. <laughs>